The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, July 8th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Most days, I do want to do a news analysis interview show with a lot of puns and a questionable Portuguese sign-off, but sometimes I don't. I don't think that I want to anyway because the news is too depressing. Well, it's not really that. It's that, like, what's the conclusion? How much do we know? I'd rather wait and absorb the news instead of quickly turning around and offering some analysis. But then I realize, you know, you may be listening to this on a Saturday or a Sunday and the immediate wounds have healed and some of the more salient facts will have emerged and you might need a little, a little uplift. So I will try to do that in a couple of ways. In the spiel... I'll once more burnish my credentials as an optimist and put the shooting of black men by police and the shootings of police by a black man in perspective, statistic, historical, jurisprudential perspective. I'll try at least. But now I'll provide some comic relief, some distraction, some uplift. And who is better for that? than Donald Trump. Now, some people in the audience are saying, oh, the Trump candidacy makes me anxious. The guys at the podcast, Keeping It 1600, call those people saying that bedwetters, callous, but probably accurate. Would that all of our anxieties be as ridiculous as Donald Trump? Would that all of our problems be so easily solved and solvable as Donald Trump? Would that every mirror held up to society show us phenomena so familiar as what Donald Trump shows us. What are you, what, what are you saying? That a portion of Republican slash white America is afraid, emotional, and irrational? Good to know. So yesterday, Trump met with some GOP senators in a charm offensive as much as he can muster. Here was a speech from before that meeting about uh, Trump wanting to be a uniter, not as he notes that that's really necessary. We're going to win anyway. Don't worry about it. In fact, probably I do better without the kind of support that we're talking about, because that's where I'm here in the first place. That's why I'm here in the first place. So he goes to Washington and he picks a fight with a GOP senator who doesn't even show up to the meeting. Here is the Washington Post characterizing Illinois Senator Mark Kirk as a loser. Trump vowed that he would carry Illinois in the general election. Asked later in the day about Trump's comments, Kirk declined to comment other than to say, I guess he lit me up. Also from the Washington Post was this exchange with Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, who told Trump he'd like to support him as the GOP nominee, but he did have a problem with Trump's attacking Mexicans. So Trump, in turn, threatened to attack Flake at least on the stump, to quote the Post, Trump predicted that Flake would lose his re-election, at which point Flake informed Trump that he was not on the ballot this year, sources said. And then later, Flake went on to say that everything that was written in the Post happened verbatim. And then another senator who was there issued an official press release through a spokesman. Ah, you know how dry those can be. Well, here's Ben Sass's press release. Mr. Sass continues to believe that our country is in a bad place. And with these two candidates, this election remains a dumpster fire, the spokesman said. Thank you, Donald Trump. Let me just end this little part of the show, this uplifting part, by quoting Giovanni Fusetti, who is a clown scholar, quote, The clown is an archetypal figure which has always existed. It makes people laugh because of its accidents and failures and faults. The use of the clown is to remind people about imperfection and disorder and chaos and fall and eventually death in a way which is based on humor. So 
This is me now. So don't be scared of the clown. The clown is here to remind you that the world is full of ills, but also to deliver you from them. On the show today, that spiel that I promised, progress, I swear, progress. But first, when bright young computer expert and open source advocate Aaron Swartz took his own life, it was a shock. Now, three years later, author Justin Peters has written about Swartz and the causes he lived for. Aaron Swartz was a genius, a computer expert, an enfant terrible, or however you pronounce that in French, an activist, and he was also an idealist. In fact, he was the idealist. The name of the book is The Idealist, Aaron Swartz, and the Rise of Free Culture on the Internet. Justin Peters wrote it. He's here with me. Hey, Justin. Hey, Mike. We're going to get to Schwartz's story, but first a compliment. This is such a well-written book on a subject that I only agreed to do because I like you personally. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really good. And let, awesome. me and let me tell you what I found off-putting or impenetrable about the Aaron Schwartz story. I remember when it came out and, you know, the, the AP inverted pyramid style is – computer guy kills himself after he's indicted. And from there, I had questions like, was the indictment just? What was this about? It was just really, really hard to figure out what exactly this guy had done and what the real issues were and to, you know, disassociate that from the tragedy of someone taking his own life. So let's start with that. Who was Aaron Schwartz before he's ever on the campus of MIT plugging a laptop into a place he shouldn't have been plugging a laptop? So, I mean, I guess the simple sort of answer to that is computer prodigy. But that can mean any number of things, right? You yep. know, like your um, your nephew, like Jerry, is a computer prodigy, right? <laughs> it happens to be, yes. It happens to be, yeah. yeah. But, like, this guy was the computer prodigy of his sort of, like, era. Noted. When he was 14, the Times is writing him up. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Times, the Tribune, like, he won. And the top names are reaching. Lawrence Lessig and the big names in the movement look to this kid who, before they even knew he was 14. Like, who's this genius? Oh, my God, he's 14. So, like, at age 14, right, after he had sort of founded Wikipedia, well, not, not Wikipedia, founded, like, a version of Wikipedia five months before Wikipedia actually was launched, mm -hmm. he won second prize in a children's web design contest for that. I, <laughs> I would hate to be the guy who won first prize in that looking back it's like I did not deserve that <laughs> title um, but anyway like then he got really sort of involved in the copyright reform uh, public domain reform movement back in 2002-2003 started working with uh, Larry Lessig on uh, Creative Commons uh, so he helped launch that when he was 14 years old dropped out of high school he was like forget that I am Basically, too smart mm -hmm. uh, for this. So he's, and also sensitive, and yeah. also hated hierarchies, and you know didn't do well with and, structure. Yeah, that was his thing from yeah. the beginning of his life. Like he really sort of was a child of the internet, insofar as he responded to and tried to replicate the collaborative dynamic that sort of grew out of the earliest days of the open web. And he had his um, most enduring successes when he was able to find other people who shared his interest in collaborating on various public-spirited projects. And he had his greatest failures when he ran up against um, organizations and uh, institutions that were top-down, were yes. hierarchical, right? That did not invite him to come in and try to change them and try to make them better. Right. Now, sometimes some of these, he didn't just run up against these hierarchies. They invited him in. Hey, you're a genius. Come work for us. And 
it yeah. didn't work out. Yeah. yeah, it was like, hey, you're a genius. Come to Stanford. Uh, so he went to Stanford, hated it. So he left after his first year to found a company. Uh, he couldn't get any traction. So then he merged with another foundering startup called Reddit, which we've all heard of. Heard and, of that one. Yeah, we've all uh, spent a lot of time there, no doubt. Or maybe it's just me. Uh, but anyway, like, so he was part of the founding team that built Reddit, and he didn't really get on with uh, the other two guys who were there from the very beginning. And after Reddit was purchased by Conte Nast at the end of 2006, the entire team moved out to California to sort of work from the offices of Wired News out there. And they were all expecting that, you know, Aaron would take his money and depart because he clearly didn't want to be there. It wasn't his project. He didn't believe in it. And they basically told him, dude, you need to go. There's this blog post he wrote about going to the office for the first day ever and at lunchtime retreating to the bathroom and starting to cry because he couldn't take it. Yeah. To be clear, this is not like a Dickensian workhouse, right? This is like a, a loft with a chef. Yeah. I'm sure they have video. a foosball table. Exactly, yes, multiple wired. foosball yes. tables. Yes. A they probably called it a campus. Yeah, it, it, was, the, it was the wired yeah. campus, right? Yeah. And Swartz was not a guy who wanted to be on a campus, right? He did not want to sit and rest on his laurels and sort of make other people's sons the center of universe, mm-hmm. right? So he basically engineered his departure from Reddit by not doing much work there. And for the rest of his life, this was right at the beginning of 2007, he spent his time working to try to open up the internet. So so let's talk about that. If he's an idealist, what were his ideals? I mean, he wrote so much about it. They weren't just anarchic. Uh, what he believed is that the internet should be used to remove barriers to information sharing, not erect them, or sort of helping create better structures that uh, help make the world more intelligent and more free. And an early example or an early fight over this, in fact, the book starts off with a preface about Aaron and we find out that he's uh, killed himself after being under indictment. And I think it leaves him for 123 pages or we we re-meet him again on page 123 when he's on the steps of the Supreme Court because there's a huge case that was over what, the Sonny Bono Copyright Act? Basically, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they were trying to uh, get the Supreme Court to uh, strike that act down. They didn't. Like the Sonny Bono Copyright Act uh, persists. Um, Which means that uh, 70 years after the death, I mean, for a work post like 1970, 70 years after the death of the creator of the work, the copyright retains, which is in contravention of the Constitution, it would seem, but the court did not see fit to say that, you know, it was, in fact, unconstitutional. So basically copyright is supposed to be – Production incentive. That's its public policy, you know, function. In that 123 pages, I go through the various iterations. Noah Webster and the Stationers Guild in England and great stuff. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) uh, But so what the Sonny Bono Copyright Act did is it extended the sort of terms of copyright to the point where now, seven years after I die, this book that I wrote will still be under copyright. That's Mm -hmm. a great thing theoretically for my heirs and their Heirs, but for the commons, it's not so great because if and when this book does fall out of uh, print, it's going to become harder and harder for people to access it and sort of use it and learn from it. On the web, there are storehouses of information, and some are free and some are not. So, could you just take us through them and, you know, how do they decide what's the free stuff and what's the stuff we have to pay for? Yeah. So, uh, we'll start with Pacer, mm-hmm. right? Pacer is this gigantic 
database of U.S. federal court records. Huge accomplishment to get this stuff online. You know, the trouble is there's a service fee. You got to pay 10 cents per page. And some of these files are huge, hundreds of pages, right? So that fee sort of adds up. And, these are pu- and the weird thing is these are public documents. That's exactly the yeah. thing, Pascal, right? These are public documents, right? They're not – they can't be copyrighted. They belong to the public. And yet, like, there is this very simple sort of, like, barrier. And what sort of Aaron Swartz did in sort of collaboration with a couple of other open culture advocates, he used his program, this sort of downloading script, and exploited this sort of free trial wherein if you went to one of, I think, 16 – federal depository libraries um, across the country and logged in from a computer there. Mm-hmm. You could download as many sort of uh, documents that you want free of charge. He had a friend go to one of these libraries, install this download script that tricked the Pacer system into thinking that Aaron was sitting in this library in Sacramento manually downloading one after another. And then from the comfort of his apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts, he ran this program uh, that sort of automatically downloaded Pacer documents. And he got 20 million of them before Pacer realized that something was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so they cut off his access and they cut off the trial program entirely. And then they sent the FBI to sort of investigate what was going on. So was it clear he had broken a rule? Yeah. Was it clear he had broken a law? Well, ultimately, the FBI sort of dropped the case against him. So uh, maybe not. I want to take it up to JSTOR, which is uh, what he was downloading at MIT. But was there one in between? Were there other triumphs uh, along those lines? I mean, there's a bunch of stuff. Like he downloaded the entire Westlaw database of law review articles and analyzed the corpus to sort of see if he could look at the influence that corporate funding of legal research had on the outcomes of uh, that research. Legal. Um, Legal to do? uh, Yeah. Not illegal. Not illegal to do. And to be clear, even though he was literally an idealist, it seems he's a bit of a zealot. Like, he didn't think there should be any paywalls for any newspapers. I mean, I'm sure he would think that journalists should get paid. And yet, if you interrogated him about, well, what would the model be that the that the journalistic entity would charge for their work, would he have a good answer for that? Well, so I, I don't know if I go so far to say that he thought that no one should pay anything for uh, material. You know, I think it's important to make the distinction between journalistic work mm-hmm. and um, sort of academic research papers, which is, I think, what we're getting at with the JSTOR downloads. Yeah. Journalists need money to do journalism, you know. Academic researchers are not reliant on the money from the sale of academic journals to do academic research. And I think that was part of the uh, sort of thinking that was going through his head when in September 2010, he went to the basement of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Where he was, what was his affiliation with MIT? Oh, he had no affiliation. He walked in off the street. He wasn't just a renegade. I mean, he had like a, a title of what something there was the word ethics yeah. was in the title. He, he, he was, was a he was a researcher at the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at uh, Harvard University, yes. which is interesting. This is a guy who has the approval of you know important people affiliated with important institutions. But while a fellow at Harvard, he goes to MIT and and he um, starts downloading documents from the JSTOR database. JSTOR stands for Journal Storage. It is one of the world's biggest online archives of academic journals. And there's various access plans. I don't want to badmouth JSTOR here. But basically, it'll cost an institution like tens of thousands of dollars per year to um, subscribe to JSTOR. And they have to sort of 
most of these institutions tend to um, limit the access to, you know, enrolled students in a university or, you know, people who are actually on site at the library. And the thing is that uh, a lot of these papers that are online are currently in the public domain. You know, the copyright has expired on them. And a lot of the other ones, um, well, they're not in the public domain, but you can make the case that they were done with the public in mind, right? That all of this research is meant to, you know, make the world a smarter, better place. And for Aaron, it was relatively unconscionable to see these massive resources that could theoretically help a lot of people if these people had access to them being limited to the people who can afford them, right? So I think that was a mentality under which he went and started downloading papers from JSTOR. Um, By literally plugging in his laptop into a JSTOR server. Am I getting that? Uh, he, he plugged it into the MIT network MIT and network. connected to the JSTOR. He's got a physical cable there. He wasn't hacking in from his home. No. And he goes in and he's wearing a bicycle helmet, but they get him on tape and it's him. Yeah. And they arrest him and they charge him with what? So first they charge him with two cases of breaking and entering, just sort of state charges, right? Then the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston gets involved really quickly. And they're not thinking that they're going to make a breaking and entering case, right? They're seeing hacking. Mm-hmm. Now, Aaron has the misfortune to be arrested right around the same time that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and the hacker group Anonymous are making headlines. And though his work is different from what Assange and Anonymous are doing, yeah. um, to um, a judicial hammer, you know, <laughs> everything's a nail. Yeah. And it's not that they had to buy his argument, but it would seem that they don't even understand the basic terms of what they were prosecuting. Yeah. He was yeah. a big hacker. That's yeah. how they saw him. He's yeah. a big hacker who is violating yeah. sort of intellectual property. So they initially charged him with four uh, federal felony uh, computer crime counts that carried a maximum penalty of 35 years in prison and uh, about a million bucks in fines. And then a year later, they hand down a superseding indictment that um, increases the counts against him from four to, uh, I think, 11 or 13, something like that. Um, the maximum penalty from 35 years to 95 years yeah. and over $3 million in fines. So let's just stipulate that he was overcharged and prosecutors often do this. Shouldn't a good lawyer have explained to him that they could get him off with no jail time? I mean, that was what Aaron wanted, right? He wanted to not have to go to prison, you know, not just because he felt that he did nothing wrong, but also Aaron was sort of a slight retiring guy with terrible stomach troubles. This was a guy who thought that the beautiful wired campus was a prison. Imagine what he would think of actual prison. In actual prison. And the best terms they offered him were a couple months in a federal prison. Yeah, but they they wouldn't budge from that, Michael. They wouldn't let him go without jail time. They wouldn't agree to a deal which is probation or community service or whatever. So they held the hard line there. Yeah. And it would seem that MIT, they MIT was backing them on this. Well, if silence implies consent, then yeah, yeah they absolutely were. Like they didn't come out and say, 
no. take it easy on this uh, academic, on this, you know, leading light of intellectualism. Even though JSTOR did. JSTOR yeah. eventually, once Aaron gave back the things he had downloaded from them, they actually called the prosecutor and said, you know, mm-hmm. we got what we wanted, which is our property. We do not want to pursue this any further. Prosecutor was basically like, thank you very much. And then continued with the prosecution. And Aaron's lawyer and family tried many, many, many times to get MIT to make a statement in his favor. And they said nothing. Now, I want to talk about his suicide. You know, that became the fact that everyone rallied around. And it almost seems to me that it gives his argument more power than it should. So I certainly would not have written this book without the suicide. That's the hook, as macabre as that may be, right? You know, suicide has a way of sort of focusing one sort of attention Mm -hmm. on one sort of terrible thing. Right. Was it some sort of final master plan to say, well, you know, this will bring attention to my case? I don't think so. I think he just got tired, you know. But for what it's worth, it has brought attention to his case, and we are still talking about it. The name of the book is The Idealist, Aaron Swartz, and the Rise of Free Culture on the Internet. Justin Peters is the author. It is a history. It is a biography. It is an argument, a forceful argument. Thanks a lot, Justin. Thanks, Pesca. And now the spiel. We're in a war, some gun-toting fellow on Twitter told me. It was Obama's war, the guy said. Obama started it with the beer summit between Skip Gates and the Cambridge cop who arrested him. Upon checking this guy's webpage and feed, which had a lot of trips to the gun range to cool him off and lots of talk about thugs and the war on cops, I didn't really feel like engaging much, but I did want to set him straight on that random start point that he chose for this quote-unquote war on cops. The Black Panthers, who definitely did kill police and were certainly killed by police, sometimes illegally, it turns out, began in 1966. In New York City, two different sets of cops were ambushed and killed in the early 1970s. This was at a time when the Black Liberation Army was killing policemen across the country. The Fraternal Order of Police says 13 police officers were killed by the guns and bombs of the BLA over the years. And now police are actually much safer than they've ever been. Deaths per 100,000 officers are near all-time lows. It might seem like the current tragedies are unprecedented, but they are not. So is that supposed to make us feel good? Well, only insofar as this fact. America tends to erase its past. It doesn't always learn and move on. Sometimes it just moves on. But as with most things like terrorism and demagogues and police shootings, we've been through this before. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to interview Chad Millman. He wrote a book about the attacks on Black Tom Island in New York Harbor. It killed seven. It knocked babies from their cribs from New Jersey to Manhattan. It pushed us into World War I. You never heard of it? That's kind of the point. America's not like Japan. It's not like Europe, where the scars are just too deep to skip over. That's a good thing, and that's a bad thing. But one good thing is that I think reform is happening. It might not seem so, because we see all these images of black men being killed, but that's not the same thing as saying we have more instances of black men being killed. We just know about it now. That's better than not knowing about it. Now, 
If you say we know about it and do nothing about it, I'd agree with you. That's terrible. But I also submit we are doing something about it. Let's go through some of the recent incidents. There was Samuel DeBose, who was shot and killed by University of Cincinnati police officer Raymond Tensing. Tensing's trial on charges of murder and voluntary manslaughter begins in November. In the killing of Walter Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina, former policeman Michael Slager faces up to 30 years of prison if convicted of murder, and he's also been indicted on federal charges. In that horrific shooting of Chicago teen Laquan McDonald, Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke is charged with first-degree murder. I could go on. Charges are being brought. And yeah, in some instances, charges are not being brought. You're probably thinking of Eric Garner from Staten Island. But his death did lead to reforms. New York State's governor recognized the conflict that local prosecutors may have in charging policemen in his jurisdiction. So the governor signed an order authorizing the state attorney general to look into police shootings. That is happening. It's happening right now. Just this week, a black man was shot and killed by an off-duty policeman in Brooklyn. The man had exited his vehicle, was punching the cop. He didn't know the cop was a cop, but the cop shot him. It's a different set of circumstances than what happened in Minnesota or Baton Rouge, but the AG, not the DA, is heading up the investigation. And yes, all the trials of Baltimore police officers and the death of Freddie Gray have resulted in not guilty verdicts or mistrials, but that might not be an injustice. Reasonable doubt is still the standard, and it's proving very hard to prove in some of these cases. The momentum is actually toward justice. I'm not blasé. I'm not sanguine. I don't think we'll get there tomorrow, but things are changing. We got body cams. We got Facebook Live. That's all prompting change. White politicians, mostly Democrats like Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton, but some Republicans too, are talking about this sensitively and accurately. We have been through worse. We're trending towards justice. It is horrible and frustrating and painful in so many ways. And you might say, hey, Mike, it's easy for you as a white man to say, don't despair. And to that, I say, it's not easy, but I'll still say it. Don't despair. And that's it for today's show. Donald Trump has vowed to block just producer Mary Wilson from ever operating a carnival ride in this town again. Executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, Donald Trump swears, can just write off his dream of ever being ambassador to Upper Volta. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has been assured by Donald Trump that he'll never so much as smell a roster spot in the USFL. The gist, if we ever harbored any notion of being named Miss Universe, we've been told we can kiss those dreams goodbye. Oomperu, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>